Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 1.2, Othello. Before I get into this episode, I want to say thank you to everyone who listened to my last episode, retweeted the link on Twitter, followed on Spotify and Apple, and have given me feedback. I'm especially touched by all of you who said you enjoyed my voice because I've always been very self-conscious about my voice. I've been called sir more than a few times while on the phone with customer service. So, Doing this podcast is definitely an exercise in stepping outside my comfort zone. If you would like to leave any comments, uh, the email address for this podcast is musingshistorypodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, all lowercase. So please let me know what you think. The Tragedy of Othello, the Moor of Venice, known colloquially as Othello, is one of Shakespeare's best-known and well-regarded tragedies. It was written between 1601 and 1603, and the first known performance was on 1 November 1604 at Whitehall Palace in London. Subsequent performances took place at the Globe Theatre and Blackfriars Theatre in London. Othello is an adaptation of Un Capitano Moro, a Moorish captain, written by the Italian writer Cynthio a century earlier. Cynthio's story and Shakespeare's story are a bit different. Shakespeare made several departures from the story, adding the characters Brabantio and Rodrigo. And he also changed the manner of Desdemona's death, having her smothered by Othello instead of bludgeoned to death by one of Othello's ensigns. He also uh, gave a name to the Moor, Othello, whereas in the Italian tradition of the 14th century, they did not give personal names to every character. Cynthia's tale was a form of the popular morality play. And in this one, Cynthia was warning European women that marrying outside their race would lead to their doom, which, okay. Cynthia, uh, not Cynthia, sorry, Shakespeare also drew inspiration from Leo Africana's 1550 book, Description of Africa, which was a geographical book written by a Moorish trader who had been captured by pirates and sold into slavery. When Leo Africanus presented the book to Pope Leo X, he was baptized and then freed. The book was incredibly popular with Europeans for almost a century after it was published, and it had been published in multiple European languages. Description of Africa was, for most Europeans, the only reference to Africa or Africans that they would ever have. During the time that Shakespeare was writing Othello, the Kingdom of Barbary, which is present-day Morocco, was becoming a a major Mediterranean trading power. And Moroccan delegates were often seen in the court of Queen Elizabeth I. 
Abd el Wahid bin Masoud bin Muhammad Anun, the Moorish ambassador to Queen Elizabeth, is generally thought to be the inspiration for Othello, and a painting of him hangs today in the Shakespeare Museum in Stratford upon Avon. Ben Masoud was appointed ambassador to England in 1600 with the goal of convincing Elizabeth to join Barbary in a joint invasion of Spain. And he brought with him an Italian translator to London to aid him in this endeavor. Around 1600, Spain was the wealthiest kingdom in Europe and Spanish naval supremacy, which had so recently threatened England, also concerned Barbary and the Italian city-states, all of which had been subject to invasions and sackings by the other continental kingdoms in the past. One last thing about the Kingdom of Barbary that I found interesting was that they were the first sovereign nation to recognize Elizabeth I as Queen of England when she ascended to the throne in 1558. Then they were the first to recognize the United States as an independent country after the American Revolution, which you would think it would have been France because of Yorktown and all of that, but, you know, France. They were also the first country to recognize Haiti as an independent nation after the 1804 Haitian Resolution. Sorry, Revolution. So basically, to the Kingdom of Morocco, money be green. And I'm not even mad about it. So Othello is set in the Italian city-state of Venice, which was, in 1601, a maritime republic in northeastern Italy. Venice had been lightly settled since Roman times, but the population grew rapidly as merchants escaping the Hun and Vandal sackings of Rome relocated their business to the area. Venice eventually became what's known as a thalocracy, which is a primarily maritime realm that rarely seeks to expand its inland holdings. Other examples of thalocracy include the ancient cities of Sidon and Phoenicia, Carthage, the city of Mausolea, present-day Marseille, France, until it was annexed by Rome, and the city of Mahapahit in India. Venice not having much land territory meant that the city relied heavily on imported food to sustain itself, and on mercenary armies to defend itself in the sea lanes that they traded on. Mercenary armies are usually made up of men fighting for money rather than God, kingdom, and country, like most European armies of the time, period. And so mercenary soldiers and sailors was often looked down upon. Fans of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series will recall how the Westerosi regarded sellswords and sellsword companies who are usually employed by the free cities of Essos. The free cities of Martin's books are modeled on the Italian city-states of the 7th to 17th centuries, most of them having been founded by the in-world version of Rome, which is called the Freehold of Illyria. This is how Othello, a Moor, came to be a general in the Venetian army and the husband of a Venetian noblewoman, Desdemona. Moor had a lot of different meanings in 15th century Europe. Generally, it referred to the Berbers of the Barbary Coast, but in the Elizabethan age, it could also refer to the Ottoman Turks, Indians, Somalis, and Ethiopians, or the Arabs. Considering the setting of the play, which is the island of Cyprus and Venice, it's more than likely that Shakespeare intended for Othello to be a dark-skinned Berber from the kingdom of Barbary.
while I was researching Venice and the history of the Italian city-states, I was reminded of the stories that black GIs from the North African and Italian campaigns had told about Italians, Greeks, Bulgarians, etc., asking to see their tails and if they had hooves and horns. Which I think is interesting when you consider that even the smaller Italian cities like Verona and Padua had Africans in their armies and also traded with them. And the larger and more powerful city-states like Milan, Naples, Florence, and Venice had even more contact with African people during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. In fact, if you go to an art museum in any of these cities, you typically find portraits of like these brown men with pointed beards and turbans flanked by all manner of like exotic flora and fauna. The fact that these men had portraits painted of them suggests that they were very wealthy and influential since it was pretty expensive to commission a portrait of yourself back then. Uh, it's obvious that Africans have been living and working and thriving in Italy since even Roman times. Like back during the Punic Wars, Scipio Africanus made common cause with the king of uh, Numidia in Jubaland, which is present-day Somalia. And the fact that Shakespeare, an Englishman, didn't think it was absurd to have his Moorish character be a general in a Venetian army suggests that Europeans were very aware of the existence of Africans and that they did not have hooves. So if William Shakespeare was aware of this in 1601, there really was no logical reason for Italians in the 1940s to be asking to see a black man's tail. It, also, Italy had an African colony in the Horn of Africa for like 100 years, Italian Somaliland. So when people say like, oh, it wouldn't be true to the time period to have a black person in this and that country in Europe in the Middle Ages, that's basically bullshit. Uh, back to Othello, though. Othello is one of Shakespeare's longer plays, having five acts. In Act 1, we're introduced to Rodrigo, a wealthy gentleman of Venice who's complaining to his friend Iago, the ensign of the Venetian general Othello. Rodrigo's upset with Iago because Iago didn't tell him that Othello in the Venetian noblewoman Desdemona had secretly married. Rodrigo claimed to love Desdemona and he had asked her father Brabantio in marriage, but Desdemona didn't want him. Iago tells Rodrigo that he also hates Othello for promoting a young man named Michael Cassio over him. And he plans to manipulate and exploit the trust that Othello has in him for his own advantage. So now you can see where Disney got the inspiration for Jafar's parry Iago, who was always like sitting on Jafar's shoulder pads, helping him plot and scheme. And he was also always listening on other people's conversations and then flying back to Chelsea Jafar. Iago tells Rodrigo to wake Brabantio and tell him of his daughter's elopement and then goes to tell Othello that an angry Brabantio is coming for him. Rodrigo and later Iago provoke Brabantio to rage uh, by telling him that Othello has robbed him and play on like these racist tropes. 
They said, even now, very now, an old black ram is tupping your white ewe. Arise, arise, awake the snorting citizens with a bell, or else the devil will make a grandsire out of you. Iago even goes so far as to say, like, if you don't stop this before the marriage gets consummated, your nephews will neigh to you. So, you know, Brabantio is furious at this point, and he goes with his men to Othello's residence to confront him. He's stopped by the Duke of Venice's guards who want to prevent violence in the streets. In Venice and many other Italian city-states, it was very common for the wealthy men of the city to have their own private militias made up of men called bravos. They had these slender swords and they dressed pretty ridiculously and spent most of their time dueling one another for the honor of their liege lord. The Duke of Venice, which in real life was called the Doge, had a city guard whose main responsibility it was to keep the peace between these warring factions, lest Venice become a bloodbath. Uh, that's very similar to Romeo and Juliet, which is set in Verona, Italy, when the Duke of Verona threatens to exile both the Montagues and the Capulets if either family starts violence again in the streets of Verona. Um, if you've never seen an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, either on screen or, you know, on stage. I recommend the Baz Luhrmann musical starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Um, I think it's a good one because although they use the Elizabethan language, the settings and the costumes and everything is all set in modern day well, 1990s Venice, California. Um, so I feel like it helps people to understand like what's going on if the language is a little too foreign for you. Also, Harold Perrineau plays Mercutio and he does such a good job. So I recommend that version. But anyway, back to Venice. <laughs> Brabantio and Othello are summoned to the residence of the Duke when the Venetians are alerted that the Turks are planning to attack Cyprus, which at the time was held by Venice. Uh, Brabantio uses this summons as an opportunity to accuse Othello publicly. So in the 15th century, women were considered property of their father, and the purpose of marriage contracts was to legally transfer a woman and you know whatever dowry she had from her father to her husband. Therefore, eloping with a woman without her, her father's consent was considered theft and was punishable with prison, exile, heavy fines, maybe even death. So for Brabantio, this wasn't so much about his beloved daughter denying him the opportunity to walk her down the aisle. This was about Othello basically stealing his property. Brabantio accuses Othello of bewitching his daughter to marry him. Which sounds silly, but in this time period was a very serious accusation. Like I mentioned in our last episode, witchcraft was not only considered a sin, it was a crime. Othello being a Moor means that he was more than likely Muslim, although Christians and Jews did live in the kingdom of Barbary and still do live in the kingdom of Morocco and Libya and Algeria and Tunisia to this day. But the Roman Catholic Church that Desdemona and Brabantio belonged to did not recognize marriages between faiths. And so Desdemona's elopement would also have serious religious consequences. By claiming that Othello bewitched Desdemona, Brabantio is attempting to get his daughter off the hook spiritually. 
Um, the stakes are extremely high for Othello at this point. He's an outsider whose main protection is his military rank, but that could be stripped from him if he were to be convicted of theft or witchcraft. Othello calmly but passionately defends himself, stating that Desdemona became enamored with him after hearing his sad life story. Desdemona is then called in to give a statement and she vehemently defends Othello and the love that she has for him. The Duke is satisfied with this because probably because, you know, Othello is the city's best general. And at the moment, Venice's worst foe is headed for Cyprus. So Othello and Desdemona are free to go and, you know, live their lives in wedded bliss. Furious at being cheated out of, you know, possibly making money or, you know, connections from marrying off his daughter. Brabantio warns Othello that just as Desdemona betrayed him, she would betray Othello, saying, Look to her more if thou hast eyes to see. She has deceived her father and made thee. Iago takes note of this remark and plans to use it to sow seeds of doubt in Othello's mind in the future. The Duke then commands Othello to leave for Cyprus and Desdemona chooses to go with him. So that's when Iago is like, oh, you're going to need a lady's maid. I should bring my wife, Amelia. And so Iago and Amelia come along as well as Othello's new lieutenant, Michael Cassio. This brings us to Act 2, where Othello learns that a storm has ravaged the Turkish fleet. That's a bit of a callback to the Spanish Armada, by the way. So I get the feeling that Shakespeare was probably like, a fan of the idea of England and the Barbary states joining up to invade Spain. Othello orders a general celebration and all his troops are free to go off and enjoy themselves while he goes to consummate his marriage. Iago goes out with Cassio and gets him very, very drunk after Cassio stupidly tells him like he's a lightweight. Then Iago eggs Cassio on to fight with an um and one of the soldiers and also like a governor, Montano, gets seriously injured in the ensuing street brawl. So Othello is furious with Cassius because as an officer, Cassio is supposed to lead by example, and so he strips him of his rank. Cassio is deeply ashamed of his conduct. Uh, but he doesn't really suspect Iago. He instead confides in Iago that he's willing to do whatever to get in Othello's good graces again. So Iago suggests to him that he ask Desdemona to intercede on his behalf. Act three is when Iago really starts like cutting up and setting the wheels in motion. After telling Cassio to ask Desdemona to talk to Othello for her, Iago then goes to Othello and persuades him to question Cassio's motives towards Desdemona. So Michael Cassio is from Florence, which makes him an outsider to the Venetians just like Othello, even though they're both in Italy. Italy was not a unified state at this time and doesn't become one for like another 200 years. So the city-states have at this point, like, develop unique cultural norms over the course of the centuries. 
even today, it's commonly thought that, you know, Tuscans are the most open-handed people, Emilio-Romanians are the nicest, Campanians make the best politicians, etc., etc. So Iago exploits the naturally flirtatious nature of the Florentine Cassio, goading him to say flattering things about Desdemona. Uh, Cassio also kisses Amelia, Iago's wife, when he greets her, which is to him just, you know, good manners. In, in Florence, it would be just seen as good manners, but it upsets Iago's more reserved Venetian sensibilities. So later, Iago brings these things up to Othello, sowing seeds of doubt in Othello's mind about Cassio. So Othello, who's already at this point disappointed in Cassio, like he thought one thing of Cassio in in that street brawl, Cassio kind of let him down. So he's more receptive to alternative views of Cassio at this point, which Iago is very well aware of because he's the one that started it. Othello readily believes the worst of what Iago is telling him, but he decides not to believe what that Desdemona is unfaithful without any proof. So Iago enlists his wife Amelia to bring him Desdemona's handkerchief, which Amelia does kind of suspecting Iago of being up to something, but she doesn't ask no questions. It's implied that she does suspect him because she says, like, what he will do with it, heaven knows, not I. Like, she don't want to know. So Iago then tells the audience that he's going to plant the handkerchief in Cassio's tent. And then Othello comes to him and basically asks for proof, which is, of course, exactly what Iago wanted. Iago tells Othello that he saw Cassio wipe his beard with Desdemona's handkerchief. And this is a handkerchief that Othello had given Desdemona. So this, the whole thing about this handkerchief, right? In the Middle Ages, a handkerchief was not just a handkerchief. It was a symbol of a woman's favor. When knights were about to compete in a tourney or go off to war, they would request a favor of the woman they wanted to marry or were married to. And they would either carry it on their lands or amongst their possessions. So a married or legally betrothed woman was only supposed to bestow her favor on her husband or fiancé. And thus, Cassio having Desdemona's handkerchief that Othello had given her, no less, was a pretty blatant statement that Desdemona had given her favor and her love to Cassio while still married to Othello. So once Othello sees Desdemona's handkerchief, or hears about it. He hasn't seen it at this point. But once he hears about that, he's pretty much convinced of Desdemona's betrayal. So in Act 4, Desdemona, who has the worst timing in history, decides to approach Othello and beg forgiveness for Cassio, which pisses Othello off, obviously. And he, like, accuses her directly of adultery, which she vehemently denies. Iago had planted the handkerchief in Cassio's tent, then told Cassio to give it to a courtesan named Bianca that Cassio was sleeping with. Then Iago tells Othello to listen in while he talks to Cassio so Cassio can hear him talk about Desdemona lecherously. In truth, Cassio was talking about Bianca, 
But Iago said Bianca's name very softly so that Othello, who, like, at this point, he's really just looking for confirmation bias. But Othello can't hear the name Bianca and assumes that Cassio was talking about Desdemona. It doesn't really help when Bianca shows up later and berates Cassio for giving her a secondhand gift, which turns out to be Desdemona's handkerchief. Othello is furious at this point and and fully convinced of everything and tells Iago to kill Cassio and starts making Desdemona's life hell. Like he struck her in front of the Venetian nobles, called her a whore, all that type stuff. So Desdemona being very young and naive, while she continues to assert her innocence, she still won't let anybody like say that Othello is in the wrong. She's loyal to a fault and it will eventually cost her life. In the final act, Rodrigo confronts Iago because he's giving him all his all this money. Iago is spending Rodrigo's money like crazy. And he's no closer to marrying Desdemona. Somehow, Rodrigo's not very smart. So Iago convinces him to kill Cassio. I don't, I still don't get how. He just was like, oh yeah, that's smart. But Rodrigo goes ahead and attacks him in the streets of Cyprus when Cassio was leaving Bianca's house. Cassio wounds Bianca in, I mean, not Bianca, sorry, Rodrigo in this scuffle. And then Iago comes out of the darkness to like severely wound Cassio in the leg. So when Cassio is crying out for help, uh, these two guys come to his aid, Ludovico and Gratiano. And Cassio identifies Rodrigo as his attacker. So to make sure that Rodrigo doesn't spill the beans, Iago kills Rodrigo. Then Iago like comes out of the darkness to blame Bianca and say she was behind the plot to kill Cassio. Because somebody had to be blamed since Rodrigo couldn't see it was him. So back at Othello's house, he's pretty much heard and seen enough. And when he sees Desdemona, he strangles her in the bed. And like, to her dying breath, Desdemona's like, well, if your will be done, my lord, or all that crap. Mm, Not me. Amelia shows up just as Desdemona is dying. And then, you know, the wheels start turning. She realizes what Iago is up to. She reveals that she gave Desdemona's handkerchief to Iago. And that Iago then gave it to Cassio and, you know, set this whole thing up. Iago then kills Amelia for snitching. And Othello stabs Iago, but not to kill him, just to wound him. Stating that, I am not sorry, neither. I'd have thee live, for in my sense, tis happiness to die. Othello, stricken with grief and shame, kills himself. And Ludovico and Graciano give Michael Cassio Othello's command and tell him to do whatever you got to do to Iago. Who, for his part, has one not to admit anything. The tragedy of Othello, the Moor of Venice. One common thread through this whole saga was how stereotypes are used against the various characters. Othello, the Moor, was 
continually referenced as being like hot-blooded by virtue of the country of his birth and thus too rash and jealous to make a suitable husband for a Venetian woman. Iago played on the stereotypes of the loose of Florentines in order to set up Michael Cassio. And Othello fell victim to the stereotypes of soldiers' wives being serial cheaters, which made him ostensibly more inclined to believe that Desdemona was cheating on him. Uh, Jealousy was also a flaw in Rodrigo, which Iago exploited, and in Othello. I think that a good lesson from Othello is to be aware of your flaws, like your tendency towards jealousy or naivete. In Desdemona's case, her naivete was her downfall because she refused to listen to the warnings that Amelia was giving her about the nature of men. So Amelia tells her in Act 3, "'Tis not a year to shows us a man, but they are all stomachs, and we all but food, to eat us hungrily, and when they are food, they belch us." And Desdemona is like, oh no, not my man, he's different. And what happens every time you do that? You get played, right? Right. And then Desdemona even relies on another stereotype to refute the idea that Othello would be different, uh, would be jealous or take out his jealousy out on her, stating, I think the son where he was born drew all such humors from him. And she says this when Amelia asks if Othello ever gets jealous. Desdemona is truly sprung at this point because that doesn't even make sense. Uh, When it's all said and done, when you know yourself, no one can use your faults against you. And I think that that is a very um, prudent lesson to learn. 